I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 95 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. This is part two of our Carol Pop conversation with Los Lobos saxophonist, keyboard player, and producer Steve Berlin. As we reach the end of part one, Los Lobos had recorded songs for the soundtrack of the surprise hit movie La Bamba. The title track went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and suddenly Los Lobos was a very popular band. But before their fame reached these new heights, Los Lobos did a favor for its label, Warner Brothers, and went into the studio with one of its struggling artists, Paul Simon. To revive his career, Simon planned to record with an around-the-world array of groups, and Los Lobos was one of them. What happened when Simon and Los Lobos got together? Why did Los Lobos feel so burned when the album Graceland was released? Berlin has some colorful terms to describe Mr. Simon and his behavior. Back to their own career, Los Lobos built upon the success of La Bamba by releasing a mini-album of Spanish-language Mexican-American folk songs, La Pistola y el Corazón. Did the label take much convincing to allow them to do that? The eclectic 1990 rock album, The Neighborhood, followed. I'm a fan of that album, but why doesn't Berlin look back fondly on its recording? What were the key takeaways from that experience that led to Los Lobos' masterpiece from 1992, Kiko? Berlin gives a lot of credit to the producer-engineer team of Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake, who worked on one key neighborhood track, Angel Dance, and came back to oversee the next three Los Lobos albums, Kiko, Colossal Head, and This Time. What was it about their approach that opened up the band's creativity? Did the band know Kiko was special as they were recording it? Did the album represent a leap in the band's songwriting, or playing, or both? How did Los Lobos' work on the soundtrack for Robert Rodriguez's film Desperado put them behind the eight ball when it came time to record the Kiko follow-up, Colossal Head? How did blues musician Jimmy Reed factor into the making of that groove-oriented album? And is David Hidalgo the most modest, awesome guitarist around? Steve Berlin takes us deep inside the workings of one of the greatest American bands of all time. They're certainly in my Hall of Fame. Please enjoy part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Steve Berlin. Graceland came out in 1986. So you did that before, was the Graceland thing before? Graceland was before, it was before La Bamba. Whenever I talk about that experience, like I have to preface it by saying like, it's to me, it always sounds, it sounds like I'm up, like us, me, we're obsessed with, you know, him and that record. It's just like, you know, you can't be in the music business for 50 years and not have things like that. Like people that are unfaithful or untrustworthy or, out and out fucking liars like he was. So, you know, it's just part of the of the panoply of experiences that, you know, you experience by being in this game for that long. And, you know, I think on on balance, we've had very few of those situations. We've managed to steer clear of um assholes and jerks for the most part. <laughs> or we figure out who they are before they have a chance to do their assholery to us. But, you know, it's just one of those things that we learned. Like he and I'm sure you've you've read the story. I mean, I don't have to go into it, but you know, we we agreed to work with him. I had the highest respect imaginable for the guy. I'm pretty sure the guys in, in the band could not have given two shits about. I don't think he had any idea who he was, but you know, I thought he was a brilliant songwriter. You know, I, I really, you know, I actually owned Simon and Garfunkel records, so I was a fan. So I had always heard 
that basically it's like you go into the studio with him. You think that he's going to like give you a song to play. And he's instead is like sitting there going here. Why don't you guys guys play something? And you guys are like sort of torturously trying to come up with stuff. And and he's not really doing much. And finally, you just pulled out a song that you guys had worked up at some point and played that. And then later he put some stuff on it and slaps his name on it. And you guys don't get a songwriting credit. So that was my impression all along. And then the stuff I read since then has seemed to confirm that that was entirely true. That is entirely true. He had no idea. He, uh, you know, the record turned into like mostly the African artists. But at, when we were working on it, the, the concept of the record was Paul goes around the world. So he had done stuff in Louisiana with some people that, that we knew. There's a great, great saxophone player named John Hart, who is I'm a huge fan or was a huge fan of. And he had done some stuff with him. Uh, I think they end up, you know, again, I don't listen to that record, but I think there's one track of his on there. But the idea was like, you know, it wasn't, you know, like the Lady Smith, Black Bombazo and the, all the South African artists. It wasn't as much centric about that. It was more like Paul just goes around the world, plays with people. The, the story came out, too, that somehow or another, like the songs that he ended up doing from South Africa, those were like hits. Like the, any South African would go, oh, that's that song. And like he just put his own thing on it and said that he wrote it when, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of evidence, including lots of records sold that, you know, will tell you that it was not his song at all. And he did the same thing to us. It was one of our songs that we don't have any evidence because we didn't, you know, we we didn't record that. We hadn't demoed it. But back then we would actually rehearse, which we don't do anymore. And it was a song that we just sort of like fucked around with. He's like, and that's what became a uh, myth of fingerprints on his record. Right. He gave us no, you know, didn't credit us for the music. Again, we had nothing to do with the lyrics. He turned it into a song. It was for us. It was literally just that, that riff. Like it wasn't, we didn't, you know, I wouldn't even, I'd, I'd be hard put to call it a song, but it was our idea, not his. So, you know, I'm not claiming, yeah, clearly we didn't write the lyrics, we didn't arrange it, we didn't do any of the other stuff that you did to it. That's how but co-writing that, happens. That, yeah, the riff that is the heart of the song was, you know, you tell me, does it sound like a Paul Simon riff or does it sound like a Los Lobos riff? Right. <laughs> If I can break. Didn't the label come in and say, hey, man, you know, like Los Lobos gets their, you know, they should get their songwriting credit here. They deserve the publishing yeah. money, blah, 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 blah. It was, uh, you know, this was, you know, I, I've I've expressed my admiration for the culture of Warner Brothers. The other side of that, the culture there was, it was a giant air quotes family. So it was like, you know, with the family, it was bad for the family to have artists dissing each other on the label. So, you know, that I think was a, you know, I think we were let down. Um, but I, I will also say at that point, Lenny and Mo and everybody, they were on their way out. So they were on their way to uh, DreamWorks um, as this was going down. So we didn't really have the same support. I think when the battle, when we were fighting with Paul for credit, um, we didn't really have anybody in our corner. Um, certainly we could have been better advised going into it that, you know, we should have had a contract that clearly said what we were in there for and what we were going to do. But again, it was, uh, you know, 86, it was still like, you know, Camelot. So, you know, we were just happy to be in there somewhere, you know, so it went down the way it went down. I mean, yeah, I mean, that would have been huge for us to have shared in the, some of the, what that record ended up doing, but we can't complain about a 50 year career in the music business. Right. So that's kind of a crazy few years where you have like Graceland and, you know, and all that crap that goes around with it. And then you got La Bamba the next year, you got By the Light of the Moon the next year, and then you go into your La Pistola y El Corazon. It's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on, but, uh, you know, it wasn't unmanageable. And, uh, you know, for us, it was sort of like we were, 
you know, we were doing what we wanted the way we wanted to do it. You know, certainly the pistola experience was really, really, you know, that was very powerful. And I think, you know, very, uh, you know, just sort of straightened out whatever was not just for the world, but for us, you know, like just sort of putting ourselves back in touch with what we were and who we were. So then, all right. So that happens. And then we start the, what was going to be the neighborhood now. Right. So we had been at the, this, like we'd like going way up the food chain of the music business, playing stadiums, you know, all this acclaim and stuff like that. Number one record, you know, so it's time to do another thing, another record. And we're, we're touring. We've sort of gotten used to like when we were touring in that era, like, you know, we had a lighting guy and we had like, we, we'd bring some of our own production. So we go and tour with that. And we, for the first time, literally ever in the history of the band, we, we end up losing money because we spent way too much. Like we weren't as popular as we thought we were. Uh, so that's a problem. And, um, it's time to make another record. Um, and our engineer for, from well, we'll survive by Lay the moon and pistola, not, not on La Bamba. He didn't have anything to do with La Bamba, but he had like this guy named Larry Hirsch, who's a fantastic engineer. Uh, did a bunch of like the Elvis Costello records of that era. Did he had been in on a lot of really great records, and we loved him, and you know we sort of understood him. But he had never produced anything, and so he was, you know, clearly I I wasn't going to produce anymore. You know, the, basically that ship had sailed. Like I wasn't that was not going to work. You know, certainly there was no from both sides. There was no point for me, you know, to want to produce anything. So basically, we we're going to find somebody outside the band to produce us. T Bone's off doing. You know, he's sort of out of the picture. It's not you know, like we had sort of that bridge was no longer open. But uh, Larry had been there through thick and thin, and we decided to give Larry the job of producing on this next record. And Larry had never produced anything, as far as I know. And again, like we highest respect for him as an engineer, but you know, the, the role of a producer is very different than role of an engineer. Like you really have to have, it helps to be a great engineer, but certainly you don't need to be a great engineer to be a great producer. You know, Mitchell Froome is not an engineer, but he's the best producer I've ever been around. It's sort of like a totally different skill set. It takes a lot of interpersonal managing. You sort of have to have a, a realistic vision of what is accomplishable and conversely, what is not accomplishable. Larry felt like this record that was going to be the neighborhood come to be the neighborhood was his, his one shot to make it. Like he was going to literally go push all of his ships into the middle and say, this is my one shot to become a record producer. And the pressure that he put on us was ridiculous. Like we, we didn't really like rehearsing very much. It was never a big thing for us. He insisted that not only we rehearse the songs that we're going to record, we had to go out and play them on the road with him. Like, joining us on the road playing tambourine like it was just like this really bizarre uh tableau of a guy who had very diligently served behind the board now you know like he had to put on his literal producer hat which he had a producer hat and he would wear like this little ascot and you know we were out there playing these songs so to be perfectly honest by the time it came to record them we were quite honestly sick of them because <laughs> we played them so much and we didn't really, you know, like, I mean, they turned out to be good songs, but it was just like, we had burned them out. And then in the course of that making of that record, we had like a moment, there was one moment where we were doing the, the song, just a man. And Larry decided that none of us were good enough to play on it. So he put together a super band to play our song, which was Booker T. Is it Duck Dunn, I think? Uh, Jim Keltner and Hidalgo. David Adaga. And for some reason, we're like, we didn't say that's a terrible idea or, you know, fuck you or you're fired or anything. We're like, okay, well, you know, let's see what happens. 
And so never forget, you know, and Larry was like, he was a type A personality, you know, and he would smoke pot literally like nonstop. Just like it, the only thing that would come down for like 10 seconds was like smoking an entire joint. He'd like become less nervous, but um, he was like really, 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 really high strung through the entire making of this record. So it convinces us to have, you know, the best players in the world arguably play our song. So we're in a studio and we're watching this go down. And so take one, you know, it sounded like what you might think it would, you know, like really good players executing this pretty cool song. Somebody made a mistake. I forget who. Take two, sounded pretty good. Something else happened. Take three, huh, starting to lose a little bit. Take four, huh, definitely losing something. Take five. And the hockey stick starts pointing down and down and down and down and down and down. And, down. and it, it just turned like, you know, the the gods were not smiling. And it just got to be a complete debacle. And, you know, Larry's literally losing his mind. He can't figure out what's going on. He keeps running out to his car. So we were at the Ocean Way, uh, the United Western Ocean Way. There's like four or five studios, I think. Anyway, like we're in the far back studio. I think it was Studio Four, Studio Five, and it was one of the only studios where you could. It was always like a camera trained on the front door, and then there was a camera that was trained on the parking lot. And because it was like the long, like the back of the back of the building, there was the only studio where like you know just had like the security stuff so like if you were there by yourself you could see if someone's coming in the door or not but you could see there's a camera trained on the parking lot and and this is now like three or four in the morning and it's going south and i'm just there for it i just want to see what the fuck would happen and i'll never forget i'm looking at the thing and you know we take a break and larry had a he had one of those uh mazda miatas and like, you, you know, you see him like, you know, the herky jerky camera thing, you see him like walk and then he's in his car and then like the car is black. And then you just literally see like smoke <laughs> <laughs> out of the windows. And it looked like, it literally looked like the car was on fire. Cause I could just see him. He's like, <laughs> and I still love the guy. I mean, it's again, like he was one of the finest engineers I ever worked with, but it just was like getting this record done was not, gonna, you know, it just took forever. And we learned what all of this is a preamble to what was going to become Kiko was that we learned that we can't do that. We can't rehearse the songs to death. We can't for us to record a song and have it make sense. It has to, there has to be unexplored territory and there has to be like Interesting. somewhere to go and something to find along the way. Otherwise we're just, it's just like we have a, a very low boredom threshold, very, very, very low boredom threshold. Once it gets boring, there's no way back. You know, you just stop pick another song, go get something to eat, go elsewhere. It's not coming back. We're not professional that way. And didn't Mitchell Froom produce Angel Dance on that album? Like, was that a separate yeah. session? That was a separate session. So by that point, you know, we had finished everything else. But so effectively speaking, Angel Dance was the first song of Kiko. Because that was the first time that, you know, number one, we work with Mitchell and Chad. We got to see what their, you know, what their thing was. Um, and it was, that was the idea that sort of became Kiko, where we were going to use you know, rather than, you know, we, we had spent all these years like learning all these different musical disciplines, you know, we put them together a little bit, but that was like Angel Dance was the first time that we said, hey, let's use a Wapanga rhythm and write a pop song. Like, oh, that kind of worked. And then that was the, the small seed that then became Kiko, what, two years later. But once again, like, so like we did the whole Neighborhood Happens record gets made we're sick of the songs but we tour for another two years we're still kind of doing stupid shit we still have like way more production than we need you know like we don't really need all the stuff that we're touring with we're still thinking that somehow or another that the music business owes us some sort of rock star livelihood which it clearly doesn't and never did 
So we get to the end of that process. So we've done, you know, we've been through all this stuff, been through Bamba, Pistola neighborhood, and we're sort of like high and dry, you know, pissed away a bunch of money, sort of mad at ourselves, mad at the music business, mad, you know, not mad at Larry. I mean, Larry did the best he could, but it was sort of like the whole thing from, from the end of Pistola through the whole neighborhood experience. Like we learned so much of what we should never do. Like number one, we weren't really going to, listen to anybody's advice for us ever again uh which we still hold fast to that basically if we you know if we listen to our own internal voices that we're probably going to do better than than listening to people tell us what to do or how we should do stuff um it's just you know like we sort of figured out our own culture by making a lot of stupid mistakes but i think that you know like just like the paul simon things like sometimes you just got to make those mistakes to learn what you don't want and what you don't need Everyone so, does. Yeah. So I don't think get, there's any like artistic journey to use that word. Well, I, I like, that doesn't have like all sorts of, well, that, that didn't work out. Yeah. So, all right. So time to make a new record. Uh, we're kind of feeling sorry for ourselves a little bit. And even though I said we don't rehearse, we did start, we wanted to do some demos because we sort of had this idea that we we wanted to do something different. So we weren't going to rehearse the songs. We weren't going to play them live, but we were going to go and kind of work them out in the studio, like do cut demos as a band. So I had been doing a bunch of production work at this place called Paul and Mike's, which was now it's like a fancy neighborhood, but at the time it was the nickel in downtown Los Angeles. So it was like really like gruesome, like the homeless families, you know, it's very rare. It's like the worst of the worst of, you know, like the bottom of the bottom, basically in Los Angeles, people living in boxes, uh, but it was really cheap. And Paul DeGray, whose studio was, was a fantastic engineer and um, got great sounds. So we were working, going in to Paul and Mike's and cutting these, demos and you know like poor poor rock stars you know sort of like hey dude like look around you look how lucky you are you know this is stop being a bitch like you know wake up you know go to work you know do your job so we sort of had like a bit of a you know wake up call there so we cut five or six songs and we know that they're different they don't sound like anything we've done before we're sort of like that that was the beginning of kiko and once again we go to Lenny's office because we sort of had to like, you know, kind of sell them on the idea thinking that, you know, maybe they don't like it. Maybe this is going to be too weird. You know, like the songs definitely didn't sound like anything we had ever done before. And he was like, wow, this, shit, this stuff is great. I love where you're going with this. I think, you know, I think you guys should um, get back with Mitchell and Chad and and see if that could work. And we're like, oh yeah, that was, you know, let's do this. So this is like a couple of years had passed from be still till now. But so we met with Mitchell and Chad and they were kind of in the same place. They had just done a record, I think with Chrissy Hind or something like that. And like, we're all this kind of strangely pissy sort of like fuck the music business, fuck rock and roll. You know, like let's just, you know, like let's die with our boots on kind of attitude. I mean, that's kind of where we're at. We're all just like whining about all this stupid, you know, crap that comes with, you know, trying to make records in 1990, whatever year it was, 92. Uh, and that was sort of the attitude that we went into Kiko with was just like no holds barred. We're just going to do exactly what we want to do. We're not going to listen to anybody's advice. We're just going to, you know, make the record that we feel like we are we want to make. And uh, if it doesn't work, then fuck it. You know, we're just, doesn't matter. We'll, we'll figure out something, you know, we'll take it somewhere else or find another record deal or break up the band or whatever. But we were not, we had effectively speaking, stopped listening to anybody other than ourselves. And of course, Mitchell and Chad, who were, you know, clearly, you know, at that point, you know, part of the band really. And that record was like, it was like a dream. It was, you know, like every day, like that whole thing I was saying earlier about, you know, the, the feeling of momentum is just like, you know, I could not wait to get to the studio every day. Like what the hell's going to happen today? Like, where is this going? 
what's going to happen, what crazy fucking things Chad would come up with. Uh, and it was just a, it was a blast. I mean, so much of it was like, it was so dreamlike that like some of the stuff that like to this day, I can't tell if I played it or Mitchell played it or Dave played it. Like I, like there's parts on there that I have no idea how they happen, but there they are. They, they happen. And, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, you know, and then that kind of changed our trajectory yet again. Do you feel like there was just this leap in the songwriting or was it also just in the, the just the whole band approach to it? Like the, or the, these two things going together? I think yes to both. Yes, definitely leap in the songwriting. Definitely um, the band, you know, again, it was sort of the added, the lesson that we had learned through all the other stuff of not like trying to do anything other than what came to mind, like in like your first mind, like the, the you know, the Buddhist called the child mind, like don't, don't overthink it. Don't over, worry don't worry about it just whatever the first thought that comes to your mind just hit it with full intention and you know see what happens and that's i think what chad was so awesome you know like he could make those mistakes sound like the most the grandest <laughs> the most amazing idea even though like we you know in many cases we had no idea how the song like where the chords were or what the parts were like you know how it's supposed to go but you know his sonic genius and of course mitchell too i mean you know they're just such a great combination but it was amazing that stuff like i said earlier like you know in the headphones it sounded like we were just kind of like you know trying to you know, like keep the car on the road but you walk into the control room and it just sounds like, you know, this magnificent, crazy, beautiful machine that we had created somehow. Do you remember what those first songs were from the album that you started and, you know, played for Lenny? Two Janes, I know, was one because that didn't that was uh, the version on the record was the one that it was the the demo. Oh, wow. And then Just a Man, you said you worked up for Neighborhood, but that ended up on Kiko also. Right. That's right. Forgot about that. So the ones that were done beforehand, I think uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, because that was sort of about that's actually about the the nickel like that's that's about the neighborhood there peace was one two chains short side i think reva's house but not kiko kiko was that was definitely that was mitchell had a huge thing to do with that that was a lot of you know he was a big part of that some of those were the demos they were we just took the stuff we did at paul mike's and and added to them uh at the sound factory where you know we did we started with Kiko and then we did two more records uh, there at South Factory with Mitchell and Chad. But yeah, I think it was really just, you know, like once we started with, you know, certainly like it didn't sound like Kiko didn't sound like Kiko from, I mean, it was a start, but like the real, like the, the true genius of it was, was Mitchell and Chad. Um, and then, you know, we just dove into this idea of this, whatever you want to call it, like this lo-fi, you know, I mean, I guess that was, the start of lo-fi but like you know trying to find this combination of like beautiful sounds and really fucked up sounds um i remember chad had he had the first sans amp that i'd ever seen and he had like eight of them on top of the console at the sound factory and like just different stuff running through the sans app for those who don't know is it's like an amp simulator so it's a little it's like a pedal that had that that version of it it had all these little dip switches and so you could sort of simulate a, a Fender Twin or a Marshall Cabinet or Princeton or whatever. You know, it was at the time sort of revolutionary. But Chad had like, you know, we were running vocals through it, certainly running saxophones through it, running drums through it. So it was, you know, just intentionally trying to fuck sounds up in in the most interesting way we could think of. And you knew while you were making it that it was a special album. You never know when you're making something. I mean, I never, you know, I mean, I'd like to think that a lot of, 
what we do is special, you know, like you create this, you know, reality in the studio that it's always something special about it. I don't think we realized until the end how cool it was. Like, you know, like we weren't, and also the way we did it, like we would work on like one song at a time. So it wasn't like we were like jumping around and, and, and sort of getting a sense of it as it was happening, like what it was. So it really was not. And then the other thing too, is that the way Chad worked is like, he would be mixing as we were recording. So it wasn't like, oh, we're done tracking. Now we're going to go into mixing. Like the mixing was like, there was no mixing day or, you know, like Chad would just put up what he had done up to that point and then like just tweak it. So we like when it came time to mix it, there was like, you know, it wasn't unusual for him to do two, three, four mixes in a day, which now seems, you know, literally impossible. Uh, but that was his process back then. So um, it really was not till like the last day. And I remember, remember like listening to the whole thing. I remember like we we sat there listening to the whole thing in the studio and like nobody said a word. We just like got up and we were like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> it was kind of overwhelming in a good way. Like not, you know, just like, wow, that's, that's pretty deep. You know, we kept that paradigm basically for two more records, you know, effectively speaking, like tried to do two more records the same way, but certainly by the third of the three, um, by this time, well, among other things, like, you know, we were changing, you know, Mitchell, Chad were changing. Like we sort of did everything we could do. I, and I, by that point, you know, Warner Brothers had turned certainly, changed into something completely different. Right. We did not feel like we belonged there anymore, which we didn't. I mean, it was just like a bunch of bean counters had showed up and, you know, guys that were industry professionals running the show and, you know, certainly nothing to do with us or, you know, one or, it, it just changed in a weird way. And then we started our, our exodus to, you know, we do one record for a label and then move on for the next, what, <laughs> 25 years or so. enough for you yet it's time for lemonade revolution brewing's freedom lemonade it's not a shandy it's a lemonade beer made with cane sugar lemons and slightly tart ale in place of water grab the original freedom lemonade in six packs or the freedom lemonade combo pack which features six freedom lemonades and six freedom strawberry lemonades it's relatively low in alcohol and refreshing on its own or in a cocktail Check out Revolution's social media for recipes. Go to at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Colossal Head, to me, sounded like it was sort of informed by, you know, like the Latin Playboy stuff mixed with you know, the low Slobo stuff. So it was a more sort of groove oriented record than sort of a song, song, song yeah, oriented definitely. record, but, but really cool at the same time. I mean, what was your experience of Colossal Head? Oh, I, that's still one of my favorite records. So the, the story of Colossal Head. So we had um, fallen in with uh, Robert Rodriguez and we were doing a, a lot of work for him. And so he hired us to do the movie Desperado. So we'd done what, two or three other movies at that point. So you like an hour and a half, like a 90 minute movie. If you actually just like, you know, like boil it down. So like most 90 minute movies, there will be like maybe half of the movie will have music and the other half will have dialogue or Foley or like, you know, cars driving or things that don't need music. So, you know, like that's 50 minutes is a lot of music, uh, sometimes 60 minutes uh, for a 90 minute uh, movie is a lot. Robert wanted 
three hours <laughs> for a 90 movie. And that was his process. Like he wanted as much music as we could give him because he would back then he was literally shooting. He was like a one man shop. He was screenwriting, directing, filmmaking, editing. And he really, really, really liked to actually listen to music while he was shooting scenes. Like, so we would, he would want us to do stuff that he would literally listen to the soundtrack in, in one year while he's filming Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek. So he literally extracted like every single germ of an idea that we could come up with. And, you know, not a lot of it was, I had to be honest, was not a lot of it was great. A lot of it was just sort of like, you know, just us trying to fill his, his wish list. but it was a lot of work, took a lot of time, a lot of time in the studio. And then, you know, like just doing the movie once, you know, the movie was actually a movie instead of just like, you know, like a lot of it was like him shooting like way more than he needed. Then like he would like edit it down, edit it down, edit it down until it became the movie that it became. So you don't really get a sense of the, I mean, I guess if you listen closely, you get a sense of the music being nonstop, but the music is quite literally nonstop in that music, in that movie. And we did that up until the day that we went in to, to record uh, Colossal. So we had, you know, we'd scheduled the time with Mitchell and Chad. We thought, you know, in our minds, in our dreams, that there would be like a month or so before the end, you know, the end of Desperado and the start of Colossal Head. We literally, it was, we were, I was in at Robert's house in the Hollywood Hills working on the movie on Sunday night. And then Monday morning, we're in the recording studio to start Colossal Head. We're exhausted. We have nothing, nothing. We have no ideas, no songs, no nothing. Hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, we're sitting there and then Mitchell and Chad are like, well, what the fuck, dude? It's like, how'd you let this happen? Like, we, had, you know, we had no answer. And so it, it all goes, well, what would Jimmy Reed do? And we're like, huh, what would Jimmy Reed do? <laughs> <laughs> and that became colossal. That's how that. That was that like Jimmy Reed might do a song, you know, I mean, I don't know if you would come up with colossal head, but it, that was, that's where that came from. And that just, we just sort of like kept that either. So yeah, it's a way more, it's a riff and jam based record only because we, that's all, that's all the bandwidth that we had. But it, I, I think it's pretty cool. Cause it was, you know, that was us coming up with shit like literally in the moment. And, you know, once again, like not, not worrying about, it like just letting shit happen and letting ideas happen or riffs happen and not beating them up or trying to torture ourselves to to write uh you know river deep mountain high or you know like trying to write a pop classic it was just you know let's see how far we could push this idea and i you know i should pay you know enormous tribute to pete thomas who played drums on all of them you know he was drums on kiko glossalhead and this time he was a wonderful a great partner to have in the studio endlessly inventive uh always 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 had great ideas and you know like no no idea was too weird for pete like no like i think was one what was it on cat stop the rain yeah i came up with that groove uh but i i was trying to describe it to pete and he kind of got it upside down but it ended up being like way cooler the way pete heard it than the one that what was in my head and it, it to this day it's like i have no idea what that what that groove is like it was just sort of like pete interpreting me interpreting something i have no idea what what's the use in trying she'll never compromise i remember that he was on i think good morning aslan but i don't think i realized that he was on kiko and yeah. that he played on all three of those Mitchell played, records. the only thing he didn't play on was well certainly the stuff that we did at 
Paul and Mike. So before uh, we went in with Mitchell and Chad, and there might have been like a couple of things where he was unavailable. We did with somebody else, but uh, you know, ninety percent of that is is Pete. Wow, Conrad. Like that was also when I sort of popped to me. I'm like, you know, th- this is a really good bass player too. Like he's got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were. Um, it was a good time for us. You know, it was. Uh, we were all kind of playing with ideas and in a good place. Like, you know, everything was very positive. Like, you know, by and large, like our batting average, both as players and as, you know, effectively composers and as a band was very high. Like, so, you know, this is our 50th year now. We've done commemoration, self-commemoration records at 30, 40, and 50. And there's not, you know, there's not a lot of outtakes. It's not like, you know, it's not like Dylan where there's like 17 records of different how the fuck i still getting like how does it get you know, like 17 fucking records of outtakes like how does that work but there's we you don't have, have like a five record set for kiko sessions or something it's very very like we just don't like you know it was our like i said our betting average was you know like a lot of stuff i mean if stuff didn't work we didn't chase it you know we didn't there's not like scads of of unfinished songs that you know more often than not the the idea would turn into something valuable and end up on a record. And, you know, I mean, there might be alternate mixes, but even those were not like, it wouldn't be enough to, like, you wouldn't know, like anybody who wasn't an engineer wouldn't know the difference. Do you think aside from the songwriting, you know, evolving all this time and just also just your, your minds being open to new sounds and adventures and everything that the, the playing and the musicianship also evolved and got better? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about decades of, of playing together, you know, in that era, we're doing, you know, hundred plus 150 shows a year. So yeah, I'm, you know, like certainly, yes, we got better both as players and as a band, like we learned how to play together and, you know, how to anticipate what might somebody might do or not do, you know, like, so I, yes, I think you can't put the amount of time in that we put in and not improve that. And we were still like, and I think back then we were, kind of more enthralled by the idea of what we were doing like you know now we were sort of i won't say we're jaded but you know it's like it, things were still very exciting like new ideas were would generate enormous enthusiasm i think now it's harder to get enthusiastic about stuff right. just i'm you know it's just who we are now yeah i mean like david Hidalgo is like one of the great guitar players out there but because he sings and writes songs like i don't know that people like he should be sort of more top of mind when you're thinking about like someone who's really good at playing guitar and and Coming up with guitar parts. I think among, you know, I mean, people who know, know that he's one of the world's best, but, you know, Dave's a funny guy. He has very, very, very little self, like he does not, I mean, it's not like Derek Trucks isn't a self-promoter. I mean, there's lots of great guitar players who are not self-promoters, but Dave is not like, you know, even when it comes time to solo, he'll tell Louis to solo or Caesar to solo. Like he doesn't, he's like the polar opposite of a show off, even though he's one of the best guitar players on earth. He'd rather have somebody else do it than him. He's funny that way. Is that one of the reasons you guys are still around? Because like everyone sort of is happy to make the other person shine and not like, hey, it's time for me. Uh, I don't know if it put it that way, but I think that uh, I think that uh, we've learned that um, like as people like we're pretty humble, <laughs> you know, like nobody thinks of themselves as being particularly uh, fancy or special or or you know wonderful. Like and certainly like the. If you do inside the band culture, you're you're just you're going to get your ass kicked. So it's uh, I think it's always been sort of uh, like our weird thing to like not be impressed with ourselves. And like the, the few moments in our past where we were impressed with ourselves, the, the karma was instantaneous, like instantly 
<laughs> literally the hammer would come down and we'd be, you know, something would happen. It would be like, Oh yeah, I guess that doesn't really, we're not those dudes. So I think it's sort of, uh, you know, just built in to a certain extent, you know, and even now, like, you know, it's just like, it's still the same. Like we're just humble dudes for the most part. You know, I mean, everybody has their moments, I guess, of being douchebags, but by and large, it's still, the culture is, is, one of like, you know, put your head down, go to work, you know? Right. Like, I think the rock and roll hall of fame is just like stupid because it has nothing to do with what I like about music. Like I don't need official recognition for me to know that this band I love is a great band and that, or, but, but like when people are talking about, I'm always like, come on, like, how is, how does it even exist if Los Lobos isn't in there? Do you guys think about that? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, the rock and roll hall of fame is stupid. So we're not going to worry about it. You know, all that stuff, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like certainly winning a Grammy, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's, you know, it's a great fun, uh, validation from else, you know, people outside of us. Um, but as we spend literally zero minutes thinking or talking about it, you know, like the, the Grammy we won for a native sons, like, no, you know, the guys didn't go to the ceremony. <laughs> They're just like, they didn't care. <laughs> They're like, yeah, then we won. It's like, yeah, that's cool. You know, it wasn't like a big deal. It was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. You know, let's have a drink, whatever, you know, it's, Again, it's sort of like that, you know, we're a tugboat. We're not a, you know, we're not one of those ocean liners. Well, I look forward to seeing you guys when you're back in Chicago. I missed the Blues Fest show, but uh, uh, I know you'll be back because you always are. So, yeah, we're there. You know, I mean, I know we'll be back around Christmas again. Uh, you know, that's Chicago in a weird way is really like it's more home than home in a lot of respects. Certainly musically, like, you know, the XRT and Lan and Norm and, you know, that the whole the entirety of every xrt tj that's ever existed has been you know such a huge part of our success and our development and you know like chicago is just you know we always know like we're going to chicago it's like it's always like oh cool we're going to chicago that's you know it's always like hey you know that'll be fun like we always look forward to it. we have so many friends there i mean like the the backstage is like a fucking you know like a bar mitzvah every time he has to like pack <laughs> all that we've known forever um so yeah it's it's uh Chicago's really special. You know, we're doing, you know, that Lynn obviously was, you know, we love that guy so much. So the, the next thing, actually, the next thing will be his memorial in August. We're, we're coming back for that. They said, we're doing a Lynn memorial. We said, where, what time do you want us there? Right. Yeah. No, again, I saw you at that Lynn thing at, again, it used to be Bub City and there was something else. Yeah. And then I remember also standing with him at Reggie's and we were just like, sort of like having a good time because, because it was like that, the sort of the XRT Studio X anyway. Uh, but I just remember we, we were just like standing shoulder to shoulder at Reggie's and you guys just played like a full concert and we're like, oh, this is awesome. So when we're in Chicago, it's not, you know, we're there, you know, it's more like a party than it is a concert for us. You know, that's just the way it always has been. It's, you know, we play in LA. I mean, it's great. Yes, it's home, but you know, it's, it's stressful. There's always like somebody's cousin who's supposed to be on the list and didn't get in. Somebody, you know, somebody locked their keys in the car. You know, so there's always this, you know, levels and levels and levels of, of non-musical insanity that we have to process to get on stage. Whereas Chicago, we just show up and it's a party. So yeah, it's always, it's always a blast. Nice. Well, I hope to see you here then. And, yeah. uh, you know, the next time and stuff. And I really appreciate you talking to me and wonderful talking to you. I've enjoyed your music for a Thank really you, long time. It's great to talk to you in person. That's all for episode 95 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Berlin for digging deep into one of my Desert Island Discs, Kiko, and more of the great music that Los Lobos made. You can learn more about him, including all of the albums he has produced and played on at steveberlinmusic.com. Go to loslobos.org for news and information about the band, including tour dates. 
Los Lobos often is on the road, and you can catch them August 3rd at the Music Box Supper Club in Cleveland, Ohio, August 11th at Morton H. Meyerson Symphony Center in Dallas, and the August 19th Benefit Concert, a celebration of Lynn Bramer at Metro in Chicago. Oh, and be sure to explore Los Lobos' catalog all the way up to their 2021 Grammy-winning album, Native Sons, produced by Steve Berlin. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who can do an awful lot, but he can't stop the rain. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram, at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.